Alrighty, so now we are ready to go. Okay. Hello, and welcome to Abbey Archives, a Redwall reread featuring one pagan and one Christian going over the series to see what age like fine strawberry wine and what age like milk. I'm Kit. I use she, her pronouns. I'm Izzy. I use sincere pronouns. You can find us and content for the podcast, including art and links to other Redwall-related things, at Abbey Archives on Tumblr and Reddit. We have, we are moving away from Twitter completely. It is a dumpster fire. The security, like literally, the thing. The security that happened, team quits. The security <laughs> team fucking quit. So like, I don't trust it anymore. And it, it's we weren't getting a whole ton of engagement on there anyway. Like we, we got were. a lot more on Tumblr. Yeah. Uh, so, like, follow us on Tumblr. You'll be able to see stuff that we post. We post a lot more on there, honestly. You can mm-hmm. ask us anonymous questions. We get a lot of engagement that way. Yeah. If you want to talk to us on Reddit, come talk to us on Reddit. I am pretty sure we're Abby Archives or Abby Archives Pod on there. Um, you can at us in things on Reddit if you want us to look at them. Like, we won't post a whole lot, but we are there. I pay attention to the Reddit account. Like, I have notifications on. Um, join the Discord if you really want to talk to us and keep up with what we're doing. We're uh, friendly. We promise. Yeah, we're just, we're moving away from Twitter. It's, it, it, eh. Honestly, it's my hope, my hope for Twitter at this point is that it's going to pull a Tumblr. It's going to get completely nuked. Muskrat is going to go bankrupt <laughs> and have to sell it for pennies. And the people who pick it up are going to be able to revive it into a, a decent site again. Because, again, I mean, that's what he's hoping is actually going to happen. I've seen some things showing, like, the trajectory of, like, what he's doing to Twitter. He mm-hmm. is purposefully trying to make it go bankrupt. Huh. So that he I can wonder... claim bankruptcy and be have, like, all of the debt that he's in over Twitter be like dismissed yeah i guess yeah either way it's like i'm not gonna cry once it disappears it was never it was never a site that i cared much about like i enjoyed it because my friends were there and you know there's a few artists who have like no socials elsewhere it's just like i'll be sad to lose them but you know that's how it goes yeah that's Um, how it goes like if you're still gonna use twitter Definitely, if you're going to keep track of artists, add them to, like, the lists feature. Start mm-hmm. utilizing that. It's basically the same thing as a curated RSS feed. Yeah. But, yeah, just don't follow us on Twitter. We're not going to be there. The count will stay up for the the username only. But if it gets to the point where I am more concerned about the security of Twitter than I am about keeping our username, I'm nuking them. Because yeah. all of the accounts are attached to my phone number. Yeah. Okay. Like, so. Abby Archives, Hope's Hearth, Hearthside Enclave, they are all connected to me. I made all of those accounts. So, I not dealing with it. <laughs> anyway, all right. continue. So, today we are reading the first half of the final book of Salamandistron, Destinies and Homecomers, from chapters 29 to chapter 37. Content warnings include... Chapter 36. We didn't read chapter 37. I did it again. Sorry. All right. From chapters 29 to chapters 36. Content warnings are death, severe illness, death by illness, entrapment, siege warfare, deep water, drowning, enclosed spaces, sanism? It's a little sanist. Um, It's like the simpleton trope, kind of. It it really makes it like the Grapes of Wrath, the big guy who's not too smart. Yeah, or uh, uh, Mice and Men. Oh, wait, yes, sorry. I meant of Mice and Men. I'm a sham of a Californian. I don't know my... (laughs) Come on, man. You're good. Uh, I also want to say... Thalassophobia, which is the fear of things in deep water. Um, Death by thalassophobic... Death by giant sea monster. Death by Nessie. Yeah, basically. Death by Nessie. Um, (laughs) Severe cold. Yeah. Heights. And... Birds! 
Birds, yeah, birds. <laughs> I haven't had to use that one in a while. Birds, birds. Um, uh, but the birds don't really hurt anybody. No, they don't. But they are intimidating. They're huge. Yeah, eat a big bird. I um, just, uh, I had to do some googling on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, I who live in an area with goldies and baldies is like, yeah, they're big birds. They are. Otters are also bigger than everybody thinks they are. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's it's funny because like in the winter the gold eagles and the bald eagles will both move towards the highway because they know that's going to be where all the roadkill is. Roadkill, the updrafts from the heat of the road, even when it's cold. Uh huh. So, so like, so like if you want to see, here's a, here's a hot tip for y'all. If you want to see bald eagles, come to the north, the northeast corner of Wyoming in fall and winter and just drive along the highways and you'll see bald eagles all over the place. <laughs> Alternatively, go to Alaska. Mm-hmm. They're basically pigeons. Yep. <laughs> Which is, you know, <laughs> hey, considering they were endangered for a while, that's a pretty good thing, I'd say. Are they still um, endangered? I don't actually know. Let's see. Let's do a quick Google, people, while we're on our tangent, our first tangent of the day. We haven't even started Wikipedia. Least concern. Hey, 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 population increasing. That's good. Golden eagles are at least concerned. Population stable. Crowned eagle. Never heard of a crowned eagle. Where are you from? Oh, you're a, okay. Yeah, hawk eagle. Cool. Bald right. eagles also sound stupid. They're I love them. They're squeaky toys. Yeah. Anytime you hear a bald eagle in a movie that's not a bald eagle, that's a red-tailed hawk. Uh-huh. Okay. Anyway, yeah. So speaking of getting started, we open on Thrug and Dumble arriving at the Falcon's Eyrie. Eerie. They're so eerie. It's pronounced eerie. <sighs> we open on Thrug and Dumble arriving at the Falcon's Eyrie. They're so cold, it's hard to appreciate the beauty of it. There's a cute exchange between McTallan and Dumble. How it's enough to gladden one's feathers, the beauty of the place. And Dumble has no feathers. When asked if he'd like to be a falcon, he climbs into the haversack, grumbling he'd rather be a Dumble. I want to I wanna read this. Um, Please do. It's a very cute exchange. It is. Um, uh, the, the, the Laird McTallan spread his wings wide at the snow-capped peaks. The setting sun had turned the ice and snow from white to a clear pink. Ah. "'Tis a sight to gladden your feathers, laddie!' Baby Dumble spread his paws, gazing down at his fat little stomach. "'I don't have no feathers.' "'Ach, so you dinna. "'Would you not like to be a falcon?' McTallan's wide wing patted him, nearly, nearly knocking him over. The Dormouse sniffed as he climbed into Thrug's haversack, away from the cold. "'Sooner be a Dumble!' McTallan chuckled fiercely. "'Ach, away with you, mousy!' "'It's very sweet. I love it!' It's very cute. I love, like, we, there are so many points in this book where I was severely afraid that Dumble <laughs> was going to die or get eaten. I mean. But every single, except for the fucking crows, mm -hmm. all, just about every single thing that has come in contact with Dumble has either been shamed by him <laughs> <laughs> or has just been like, oh, look at this terrifying friend. beastie. Yeah. <laughs> just like, like absolutely going along with it because this is a baby. And uh -huh. it's just everybody sees a baby and they're like, oh, my God, it's a baby. You you know what it is? It's showing how like this world is inherently so good that these wild and fearsome creatures see a child and go, that's a kid. We're going to we're going to take care of this kid. Yeah. It, it's just it, such a softness. It's very it's nice. It's really good. I greatly enjoy it. Because um, there is a moment that's going to come up in a bit where I was just like, uh. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh. But nothing happened. Like, nothing bad happened to Dumble. Dumble's totally fine throughout the entire book, except for when the crows happened. Dumble's fine. Like, this is, this, this baby is going to have some trauma when, as he's growing <laughs> up, but like. For the most part, he gets out of this completely fine. He will be alive to work through that trauma, which is an yes. important thing. Yes. Okay. After a chuckle, McTallan gets back to business. He knows Thrug wants the flowers of Isator. 
We learn they only grow under the nest of a great eagle, the Wild King McPherson. I need everybody who did not read this and maybe only listened to an audiobook or is just listening to us. McPherson is spelled M-A-C-P-H-E-R-S-O-M-E. McPherson. Because it's supposed to be a play on fearsome <laughs> and fearson, like McPherson. <laughs> Which is an actual name. I just like when I, I love, when I got I, to this when I got to this name. It's like I know in the past I've really like groaned at Brian like making a name that is so on the nose. But it's like you know what? No, I bet you he had a lot of fun reading this out to kids and thinking this up. He had fun with it, and I'm not going to complain about it. Good for you, Brian. There's definitely like similarly with like uh, Matthias. Although this one is better, like, this book is significant, like, Matthias is, has a good story in it, but there is so much around it that's just like, ugh. Yeah. But it was, these books are built to be read out loud. They are written and built and set up as though Brian wanted to read them to his children over the course of, like, a few weeks or a month or so. The same way that, like, my dad used to read, like, uh, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and the Narnia books to us, like, every night before bed. We would get, like, an hour of reading, uh, my dad reading out loud, and then we'd go to bed. And those books are not necessarily... The Narnia books more so than, like, The Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the Narnia is... I feel like Lord of the Rings was written for kids, but Narnia became better for kids because Lewis was just like, I'm going to have fun. Santa Claus is going to meet these kids. He's going to give them all kinds of cool stuff. Meanwhile, uh, poor Tolkien is just going, like, gritting his teeth going, could you please not? Well, I'm talking (laughs) less about, like, the contents and more about the way that they're written. Yes. And how they uh, lend to being read out loud. Mm -hmm. Um, the Hobbit is definitely one out of those like three because the Hobbit's not the Lord of the Rings. It's the Hobbit. It's yes, its own book. It was written. That is the children's story. The Hobbit mm-hmm. is supposed to be the children's story out of that like universe. It is the one out of those that I think reads the best out loud. Some of the Narnia books read really well out loud. Mm-hmm. Well, some of so them much. don't yeah <laughs> like the silver chair no <laughs> okay which is ironic because the silver chair is actually one of my favorite narnia well, yeah. books yeah it is but one it's... of the be- it's one of the good ones but it, reading it out loud until i think you get to the end of it yeah no i'm thinking of the last battle never mind no the last battle is definitely not a read out loud book um, not until that... you get to like the end yeah when you get to the upwards, end, further yeah, up exactly. and further in. Hearing somebody read that bit out loud always gives me goosebumps. Further up and further in. Yeah. <laughs> I just got goosebumps too. Yeah, right? Because um, it's such, it's so evocative with the, especially with the way that it's like written and described of mm-hmm. what they're going through as they go further up and further in. Mm-hmm. It is really well written and reads out loud really well. The rest of the book, absolutely the fuck not. <laughs> But, like, Horse and His Boy reads well out loud. Um, Don Treader reads well out loud. Which is funny, because Don Treader is probably one of my least favorite of the Narnia books. Except it does have one of my favorite characters. Reap a Cheap. We love Reap a Cheap. Would <laughs> In di- this house. So many people think my, um, my Martin tattoo is actually Reap a Cheap, which you know what? Totally fine with that. <laughs> Reap a Cheap, good. Love you got Reaper two Chief. for one with that tattoo. Yeah. A couple of people also think it's a possum, which, you know what, knowing me, fair. <laughs> like, All right. We, like, you good to get back to the book now? I have I have just one more. <laughs> the Don Shredder is probably, like, story-wise and connecting with everything is the weakest out of all of the Narnia books. Mm-hmm. We're not a Narnia podcast, but like we have, it's books. We have opinions. We grew hey, up on I, these. I wouldn't mind doing a Narnia podcast once in like three or four years we finish When we're this done one. with Redwall, <laughs> we're going to move on to, we'll Narnia. to Narnia. I, this is not a promise. We don't know what we're doing yet. That is quite a ways off. There are so many books in this series. Uh-huh. But the Dawn Treader reads really well out loud because 
each island is its own compartmentalized story. That's true. So it reads well out loud because each night you can read through one of those stories. And then you're anticipating what adventure are they going to go on next. My favorite bit from that is the people who are cursed to be invisible on that one island. Mm Mm-hmm. My favorite island And, like, they jump everywhere. (laughs) And so they just hear these thumps as they're moving around this island trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. That is so (laughs) evocative. And then the one where the one kid gets turned in... Almost gets turned into a really big dragon, or he Uh, does get turned into... Eustace, and he does get turned into a dragon because he was a little shit. Yeah. And this is his redemption, which kind of plays off the old myth of the... Is it the Lindworm? But his whole sequence is a mix of Christianity and an old myth where he gets turned into a dragon. And then once he's finally like learned his lesson, once he's become repentant, Aslan comes and literally claws the dragon skin away from him layer by layer. And it's painful. It's agonizing. But it also feels better as each layer comes off. Because learning to be a better person Mm-hmm. sucks mm-hmm. it's worth it you will be a better person when you come out the other side but it sucks and it's hard work and it will hurt you will uh-huh. hurt you will hurt other people and that is just how it goes yep so yeah and yeah books but the, the, that... the old the old myth that's based off of is like uh, a princess wanted kids they gave her two flowers for some reason they're like you could eat this flower but don't eat the other flower but they're so pretty, she eats both anyway. She gives birth to a normal prince and then a dragon. And the dragon was born first. So he, he scurries off before he can get killed. Kind of basically says, like, I will return to get what's my due. And when he comes back, when his brother gets engaged, he says, I'm the eldest brother. I deserve a wife first. And then keeps eating all of the wives he's given. Until one girl who is clever puts on layers and layers and layers of clothing. So she said, every layer of clothing I take off, you have to shed a layer of skin. And then once he gets down to a certain point, she just starts like beating him with like a, a lye soaked like uh, yes, branch or something. Story, she just yeah. beats him, beats him and beats him and beats him until finally he's just like, stop, stop. I'm sorry. It's okay. And she's like, oh, there's my handsome husband. And he's like, oh shit, I'm human again. Thanks. <laughs> that also is really, really similar to a German tale called the Gruffelhog, uh-huh. which is where a, a mother who could not have a child, wished and did everything she could to have a child. Like, every, like, old wives' tale and, like, medical thing that she could think to do, including, like, sleeping upside down and things like that. <laughs> uh, until finally she she just says, I would give anything to have a child, even if he were a hedgehog. Oh. Uh, I would love him and snoodle him and, and eat him all up. Uh, and she gives birth to a hedgehog child. <laughs> Uh, who's called the Grufflehog. And as, like, he grows up, he leaves and, like, get, like, just, you know, fairy tale shit. Somehow he ends up with a castle. Uh-huh. Um, but there's this woman who gets, uh, he, he, like, saves her from the forest or something. Uh, and she becomes engaged in him. It's almost a Beauty and the Beast thing. Mm-hmm. Um, like he's like you will marry me and she's like but you're a horrifying creature and um, but he's very kind is the yeah. thing and a witch tells her to because every night he sheds his skin and goes down to like spend time with all of the animals that he owns like his horses his birds his like cows his goats birds. and they all love him uh, and he's human when he does that, but he leaves his skin by the fire. And a witch tells the woman to throw his skin into the fire, and the curse that he's under will be lifted. Well, she huh. does that, and he leaves, because that wasn't how it worked. Oh. Well, she gets, like, three different pairs of shoes that she wears, and walks and walks until she wears the soles out of all of them. By the time she's worn the soles out of her last pair of shoes, she finds him again and refuses to let him go because she's, like, like she is saying the same thing that his mother said to, like, 
have him is like I will love you no matter what I will snoodle you and cuddle you and eat you all up and he the curse is lifted he sheds his skin and he's a man yeah I've heard variants of that one before too anyway let's get back to the book we like fairy tales which is we part do. of the reason we really like these books and we're both pretty relaxed today, so we're probably going to have quite a few tangents. I'm going to have to be picking and choosing which ones we keep in. <laughs> I think we should keep um, the entirety of that one in because it's book related. It was fun. Um, okay. So, all right. We stopped at Wild King McPherson and then we went off. Yep. So I'm gonna reread. I'm gonna reread that just for everyone who listened to us <laughs> ramble for the past ten minutes or so. Okay. We've been recording for thirty minutes and we have read barely anything. <laughs> McTallan gets back to business. He knows Thrug wants the flowers of Isator. We learn they only grow under the nest of a great eagle, the wild King Macpherson. But if Thrug is willing to try, he'll lead him there on the morrow. Rockangus takes them to a little cave that serves as his nest. It's dreadfully cold, so Thrug starts a little fire. Rockangus is wary, but soon lulled to rest by it after seeing how much Dumble enjoys it. Like, he's just warming his little paws, like, oh, mm-hmm. fire. Yeah, there's, like, a heather and, like, um, uh, like, sticks, like, thorn sticks mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And Probably, like, leftovers from his nest. Yeah, and, and uh, Throg, like, put, stacks as much of it against the entrance as possible to keep out the cold, and then takes some and, like, builds a fire, and Dumble is just, like, sits and puts his little feetsies close to it. Mm-hmm. It's very cute. He warns and advises Throg about McPherson. He's a large eagle, wild and fierce. He doesn't part with the flowers easily. He also won't allow armed beasts near, so Throg must leave his sling behind. Throg says he can pretend to fear the eagle if it'll get the flowers to Redwall. Later on, after the other two have fallen asleep, Rock Angus feeds the fire, fascinated by it. And Party was like, hey, is, is Brian setting up a Shekhov's gun here? Or is this just like Rock Angus having a moment of like, ooh, pretty fire. Uh, uh, it might be a Chekhov's gun. We haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. But uh, I would love if Rock Angus is just like firebird time. Right. <laughs> that dawn, surrounded by clouds, turned misty against the mountains. Thrug sets out on his climb. Dumble securely settled in the mostly empty haversack. And it's like, oh, I'm a blonde. The whole time I thought the haversack was just for food. It's like, no, it's there so he can collect the flowers and bring them back. I just realized that now. The Um, way also that this scenery is written is beautiful and haunting. mm -hmm. Because the clouds have settled over the mountains and they, there's just cottony white and they can't see anything like i've been they can only see the ground directly under their paws yeah i've been in the mountains when this has happened when a cloud has settled over it and same it's It's terrifying yeah i've driven through the mountains through that and it is like oh no thank you no thank you especially on some like whipback roads (laughs) Um. (laughs) no well just like it's terrifying like, also, like, I can see the mountains, like, right outside my window. And there Sorry. are some days when we get, like, snowstorms coming in where you wouldn't know there were mountains out there because the clouds come down so low and mm-hmm. so thick. You can't mm-hmm. see them. And I'm not kidding when I say I can, like, I could walk. It would take me, like, a 10-minute walk to reach the foot hit, first foothill, if that. And you can't see it when the clouds come down like that. Yeah. Um, and it is it is terrifying. Also, like, as you were reading this, my brain was just, like... Far over I knew you were the gonna do misty that. mountains cold. I'm gonna fight you. Uh, <laughs> we were just talking about Lord of the Rings. We were, what the fuck we were, was I supposed to we do? Were, it's okay. And it, they do sing it very nicely. Um, I love the more recent version of it from the more recent movies. It's yeah. just that deep bass is so good. <laughs> Same. Um, it's a cold, hard, and brutal climb. Down glacier valleys, up ice-encrusted cliffs. It takes all of Thrug's force and power to make it up. But he does. Just at the end of his strength, MacTallan tells him he's made it. He wishes Thrug luck and sends him to see the Wild King Eagle. And reading the sequence, like you mentioned how like the, the, the visions he writes are so evocative, but not just the visions, the way he writes them makes me think of like old 
Greek myths or a biblical parable of like fighting against the impossible, like still climbing despite how tired you are. It, it evokes that old feeling. I just realized something. Hmm? In each of the books so far, there has been at least three exceedingly difficult tasks that have had to be overcome. <laughs> Trial of threes. Yeah, th yep, the three is aggressively bib biblical number. We Christians do love our threes. We love our Listen, trilogies. The power of three <laughs> is really good. That's the the most recent short story I wrote for Hope's Hearth had mm -hmm. a trial of three in it. Mm -hmm. Because, like, it is just thematically a really good, like, uh, uh, storytelling device. Mm -hmm. It's not just a Christian thing either. Because no. you'll see, like, in a lot of the old fairy tales that the Grimm brothers compiled... There, there will be the three tasks. There will be the three questions. There will be the three brothers. It's just three is really good for a narrative beat. Okay, we also, we need to keep in mind that the Brothers Grimm did also rewrite some of those. Yes. To make them more Christian. Yes. So. That is true. <laughs> we do need to keep that in mind, but you are correct. Even the, even like in some of the original ones, there are still like specific numbers it may not always yeah. be three but there's numbers that are important to whatever culture it came from yeah. that serve a similar purpose right um because it's just uh, that's how it is and okay. uh, humans like things like that there's in judaism there is uh to like there is a thing that rabbis will do uh when somebody is converting to judaism is you have to ask them three times and they will tell you no each time and then you ask them again and they will tell you yes mm -hmm. not every rabbi does this obviously yeah. but this is like a story and i don't know all the words to the story mm -hmm. but it was basically like a rabbi like telling somebody like no over and over or it could have also been a biblical story i don't remember which one it could be something from the talmud or not i don't remember i am not jewish <laughs> this is me repeating things that people have told me but it's just one of those things. It's still the three. Because mm -hmm. you have to show that you want it. You have to be persistent. And that's also part of what these tasks are. Is the persistence. Mm -hmm. To get to where they want to be. To get to their goal. Etc. Etc. Yeah. Uh, also, so... I just... You didn't hide it. it. No, this has to do with the book. This has to do with the book. Okay. <laughs> Throg can't see Mactalan for most of this. Mactalan is flying. And Throg is doing his best to follow. Like, Mactalan mm -hmm. makes sure that every so often Throg can see him, but for the most part, Throg cannot. And he's aware of, like, Dumble in the backpack the whole time. Yeah. Like, he's got this little life that's dependent upon him. Not just this little life, but the entire abbey. Yeah, it is. Oof. Like, Throg gets the most straightforward hero's journey out of anyone in this book. Like, literally straightforward. Um, it's good shit. Speaking of Throg, he sees the nest, the flowers growing around it, and they're all hidden, half hidden in the snow. They're such delicate little flowers. Like, they're mm -hmm. described as being, like, white that, like, with, like, like fades and, like, blue tips on the like, petals. Like snowdrops. They're just, oh... Thug lets out a jolly hello and is then humbled by the eagle that emerges. Can, the golden. Can I read it? Yes, you may. Can I read it? You may. Thug called up at the nest in a friendly tone. Ahoy there, your majesty. It's me, Thug of Redwall Abbey. I've come to visit the wild king himself. There was a crackling of heather and twigs. The nest stirred slightly. Then MacPherson himself flew out. The sight completely took Throg's breath away. He had not been prepared for something like this. Snow flurried around his head as the great expanse of wings flapped downward and the wild king landed in front of him. It was an awesome thing to see. The colossal golden eagle towered over Throg, two massive feet sinking slightly into the snow, lethal orange-scaled talons digging in for leverage. Each of the heavily feathered golden brown legs was as thick as the otter's body. 
the eagles stood rooted on them as if they were twin oaks. The staggering canopy of wings swooshed noisily as the bird folded them both over his mighty back. The head dipped toward Thrug, lighter brown-gold feathers framing the wild eyes afire with hunting lights. Like, this is a dragon. This is a fucking dragon. <laughs> this is a dragon. This is our second dragon in this book. A, a mighty beast sitting on a horde of a resource he doesn't need and doesn't like to share. Yeah. And I'm going to burst the bubble here. Otters on average are about 2.2 feet long, right? They're mm-hmm. much bigger than people think they are. They're the size of, like, a dog <laughs> sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Golden eagles are between 2.2 and 3.3 feet tall-ish. This is not their wingspan. This is, like, how tall they are. Mm-hmm. So otters and golden eagles are roughly the same size, depending. Like, a golden eagle's wingspan is still going to be massive compared mm-hmm. to the otter, but, like, it wouldn't be that big. But as you say in your mm-hmm. comment replying to me, it wouldn't be as majestic. This is Brian playing, again, he's playing up old myths, old mythology. You have, like, the hero going to fight a giant, uh, David and Goliath. Um, oh, geez, there's I'm blanking on his name right now, but he was like an old hero who went and fought a troll, and like the troll was big and just like heck of you. And it was actually his mother who was the worst monster, or the troll's mom was worse. But um, it's just constantly in mythology you'll see these things of like the hero being humbled by the size and the strength of the monster. Made yeah. to be physically small to show not just the strength of their body, but the strength of their courage and heart. Yeah. And, like, Throg is definitely used to being, like, one of the biggest things around. Mm-hmm. Because uh, he's, he's a large otter. It's described as such. He is, like, one of the biggest people in Redwall Abbey right now, which is why he pretends to be the badger. Mm-hmm. And... Mactalan is bigger than he is, but not by a whole lot. So, like, if Mactalan and Thrug got in a fight, they'd probably be roughly evenly matched. Actually, no. Thrug in the book, can... he's described as being significantly bigger than Thrug. You have to throw away the animal's actual size here. Mactalan is described one of his legs is as big as Thrug. This bird. No, I said Mactalan, not McPherson. Oh, Mactalan, sorry. I said Mactalan. I was getting to McPherson. You're right. McPherson is. So many more times bigger than Thrug. Thrug cannot fight this creature. No. Like, and he knows that he pro- he couldn't. He would get snapped up or crushed, like, McPherson, thrown off the mountain in an instant. McPherson keeps calling him breakfast. He's like, I don't like my breakfast to come calling. Go away. I'll eat you when I'm ready. Oh, and... You're not, you're not going to do the accent? You're not going to read it? <sighs> I don't like my breakfast coming up here to meet me. Hi away and hide, river dog. I'll come and hunt for you. And Thrug basically is like, hey, I'm not here to fight. I'm not here to cause a problem. He makes his plea where he asks that he needs the flowers of Isator for Redwall. Why should I give you my flowers? They're mine. And, like, Thrug tries to appeal to, like, his sense of, like, uh... Decency decency like, and mcpherson is just like i don't care for anybody yeah. who doesn't live here it's like they're not part of my mountain they're not my creatures why should i care and you know what is the otter going to do if he refuses him and thrug sets aside his haversack apologizes and says that he'll fight for his friends in the abbey mcpherson laughs and knocks Thrug down with a sweep of his wings as he launches into the air, his laughter echoing among the peaks. When he finally lands again, he says in a roundabout way that he respects Thrug's brave nature, and he'd be sad to eat the otter. It's then that Dumble comes rolling out of the haversack and beats at the massive foot in front of him with his tiny paws, demanding the eagle leave Thrug alone. You leave Mr. Thrug alone, you big bully. Dumble fight you. (laughs) Plucked aloft with one talon, McPherson is greatly amused by Dumble, playfully saying he was terrified of this new beast. Dumble takes another swipe at the eagle's beak, and McPherson plops him in Thrug's paws. He ponders what they feed them at Redwall to make such brave beasts. 
And if he values his life, he'd better hand over the flowers. Can I, can I read it? <laughs> yes, you may. It's just really good. He's so just, cheerful. The, yeah. The way that he interacts with Dumble, like for a legitimate moment, when Dumble was like, just pops out of the haversack and like goes and like punches one of his talons, like you leave Mr. Throg alone. And then he like swoops Dumble up with the talon. Like this little, this little. I was so scared for a second. I thought he was just gonna flip the baby right into his mouth. I was like, "Oh no!" Uh, this little dormouse was like the size of the talon, if that. So Smaller. Crazy. It's got to be the size of McPherson's eye. Uh-huh. He's so small because he's a baby. Like literally in my head, I know he's described as an elite, a golden eagle, and I know what real golden eagles look like. They live in my area, but I mm. can't help but imagine Marahute from the Rescuers Down Under. Same. And Same. It's such a good movie. Yeah. And right, like, go ahead and read your, read it out if you want to. And then I'm going to read my other note at the end. One of the formidable talons looped through the infant Dormouse's smock and he was swung aloft close to the golden eagle's huge eye. Name of Craggs, what have we here? I'm scared and affrighted for my life. You would not kill me, would you, Mousie? Dumble swung a chubby paw at the Eagle King. Dumble, knock your beak off if you hurt Mr. Thug. McPherson plopped him neatly back on into Thrug's outstretched paws, astonishment written on his savage features. Ugh, I didn't ken with the Fiji on it, Redwall, but it must be uh, must be good to produce such bra beasties. I'm thinking I'd best gear the ice flowers, for I'm slain by the paria. Great Eagle sp- uh, spread his pinions, beating wildly as snow flew up all around, laughing and screeching in high humor at his own joke. Like... The way that he reacts to that with, like, just, oh, this baby is gonna fight me now. Right? Yeah. Like, oh, no. What am I going to do about <laughs> Whatever this? Whatever will I do? This this fearsome creature. And it's like... Just, he... I love how he laughs I, at himself. Um, it's so good. I know. Um, okay. And, like, I make a note here that I enjoy this whole sequence because, like, it's Brian pulling upon not just mythology, but like history, because the old kings, like the kings of old, they were the gift givers. They were the giver of rings. It was their job to take care of the folks below them. And of course, like kings were fickle. Of course, they could be bullies, but mm-hmm. it was a give and take relationship. If you impressed them, if they saw you as valuable, they would give you aid. They would give you gifts. And Thrug was being completely honest and willing to give his life here. He earned that respect. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So McTallan, hidden below, has to sit down to get his heart to settle. Like butt to the ground, like flat, legs uh-huh. out, just sits and is like, <sighs> yeah. Grateful beyond belief that the Mercurial King's mood had swung in favor of his friends. And I make a note of like, can't falcons like literally frighten themselves to death because their heart will just beat too fast? And I honestly, I think most birds can because their hearts already beat pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Also, McTallan's reaction to this is a fucking mood. Very. <laughs> that was also me. <laughs> so we end that chapter and start the next one by going back to the island with the Guosam, Mara, and Pickle. The ghostly wail echoes once more, waking up what few of the crew hadn't already popped awake. Sensing their panic, Mara manages to turn it all into a funny tale of Earthstripe doing much the same to spook and train his hares into alertness. Pickle picks up on it and builds on the funny anecdote of a hare with his butt stuck in a hot pot of soup. Very specifically Bart Thistledown. Uh-huh. Soon the shrews stuck up hair. <laughs> Soon the shrews are giggling and laughing. Once the crew is calmed down, they feed up the fire and put them down to rest. Mara stares glumly at the fire, and when Pickle asks her why, she says she wishes those lies they'd told were true. If the mountain had been like that, she'd never have left. She sheds a single tear. And like this one hurts because she didn't hate her father. She didn't hate her home. She just wished there was a little more life there, a little more joy, and a little less doldrums. Mm-hmm. 
Pickle comforts her. Maybe they had been lies, but they had worked. The shrews were sleeping, and so should they be sleeping. He wishes Mara a good night and settles down. I wish we had more of this pickle and less of the pickle that you and I both want to punt into the lake. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, everyone is roused three hours after dawn, and duties are passed out. Logalog and Nordo will go with some of the crew to find boat repair material. Six will stay and watch the fire in boats. And Mara, Pickle, and Tubgut will go hunt the ghost. Mostly because Tubgut refuses to leave Mara's side. <laughs> yeah. He's like, he's like, I owe you my life. I will do whatever the fuck you tell me to do. I'm going to go with you. And it's, you know what? It He doesn't do a bad job. Like, yeah. Tubgut was a shit and a dick, but like once he has decided that he's going to do something mm-hmm. and follow somebody, he's fiercely loyal. You you know what he is, Izzy? He's hmm. that redneck neighbor who's um <laughs> he's that redneck neighbor who's an asshole until you you point out why him being an asshole doesn't make sense, prove that hey, you know, your loyalty is better deserved elsewhere. And like the minute they become an ally, you could never ask for a better ally. I have um one of my mom's friends in Augusta is like that. Uh, he has some opinions and I am like, I can never talk to you about anything ever, but even if he and I have a disagreement, if I need him, he will show up to my house with a shotgun. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause he's like, no, I've claimed you, you are one of mine uh-huh. and I will defend you. Even if we have disagreements <laughs> That doesn't stop you from being one of mine. Exactly. Um, Everybody get a redneck friend like that. <laughs> like, you will have the worst arguments with them, but they will go to bat for you every fucking time. Mm-hmm. Okay. And eventually, you'll be able to convince them to stop being shitheads. Yeah, it, you gotta be... It just be... takes a while. Yeah. You gotta know how to Slow talk to them. Slow and steady. Mm-hmm. You gotta know how to talk to them, because coming at them with, like, theory and praxis immediately is not gonna... No. It's like you cannot you, you cannot give them Karl Marx. They're not gonna. <laughs> you have to you have to exist around them. That's basically what it is. You have to exist around them as yourself without being like overtly aggressive. Just like yeah. you, you you have to tame them like you would tame a smooth horse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God. And like a lot of their opinions already probably align with yours, but mm-hmm. like there's a lot of historical bullshit when it comes to that kind of stuff and distrust and trust me i live here (laughs) (laughs) the trio find a little wild orchard of fruits pausing to eat some of the ripest cherries off a tree and like this this i'm just gonna repeat what i said before yeah Uh, this this orchard is full it's like got cherry trees and apple trees and pear trees and like a sweet beech nut tree and i was sitting here reading this and i was just like this isn't wild. No. <laughs> this is tended to by somebody. This shit doesn't all grow together by, uh, uh, like, naturally. And speaking of being tended to, Pickle starts getting pestered by cherry pits, which he calls stones. But at Mara and Tubgut, swearing innocence, is baffled. Until he spots some fleeting gray figure dashing across the treetops. They give chase, but it's useless. Also, for context, uh, my mom was just vacuuming for like the past 10 minutes, which is why we mentioned repeating what we just said, because uh, we lost track of what we said before. Um, yep. Pausing by a pool of water, Pickle and Mara see the stranger watching them from the top of a tree. They wait, letting its curiosity bring it closer. It gets on the ground, and they're quick to corner it, using the pool to block their escape. It's an old squirrel, red fur grayed with age. They ask, why is she pulling such childish pranks? But she doesn't reply. Pickle scolds her, which only gets her to yell out, Eulalia! And it's like, I would throw cherry pits at you too. I dislike you, Pickle. Um, He says, if that's all she's saying, they won't get much done. But her first words are smug, saying the trio are now the surrounded ones. An ancient badger lady and a giant white badger come bursting out of the woods. Pickle and Tubgut are caught totally off guard. Only Mara steps up to the attack with her sling and a shrew rapier. Like, she's ready to go. She is bristling. She challenges the white badger, who seems to be timid beyond his bluster and size. We learn from the petulant lady badger his name is Earthwhite. She demands he flatten her. She's only a puppy. 
but Mara bristles even more, challenging him directly. Pickle warns her to be like Sapwood. She can't take him for size alone. Be quicker. But he can tell the badger has no fight in him. The squirrel calls out to Earthwhite. The lady badger, who we learn is named Lombud, shoves the poor albino badger, who catches Mara off guard, scooping her up in a vice-like grip. Is he albino or leucistic? Uh, actually, yeah, they don't mention him having pink eyes. He would be leucistic then. So, the leucistic badger. (laughs) He asks her to give up the fight. He doesn't want any part of it. She struggles and is saved by Pickle whacking one of Earthwhite's paws with his sling, telling him to quit being a bully. And this was like after Pickle had stopped Tubgut from stabbing Earthwhite. Because um, that's counterproductive. Yeah. That ends it, sure enough. He drops her, hops about a bit, then mutters in a hurt voice that he's not a bully. Those two are, always making him fight. It's just like, oh no, he's a gentle giant. How is this guy supposed to become the Badger Lord? He's a sweet, soft boy. Soft boy. (laughs) Lumbud turns out to be quite kind and motherly, tending to Mara and telling her squirrel friend, Ashnin, that she doesn't think the three are a threat to them. Ashnin says, yes, they were. They'd had her surrounded. Pickle protests, saying she'd started it with the cherry pits. And she smugly boasts about her aim at that. Hadn't missed once. (laughs) <laughs> Earthwhite seems a simple being, asking permission to drink and having Lombud lament his failing to live up to his great badger warrior of a father. But it isn't his fault. He asks- Which, reading that, I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> I think she means that he's, this is what, I, this is the warning we had earlier about the simpleton or the sanism, because Earthwhite, when I call him a simple being- he definitely seems to fall into that trope of the big guy who's just not that intelligent, who's content to just kind of float along, letting other people tell him what to do and how to think. He has, and I'm saying this as an autistic person, but the way that he's written falls into a lot of like autism tropes mm-hmm. in media because you get like the like bigger like autistic kid or like the big quote-unquote bully but really they're not a bully they're just bad at socializing because you know autism Mm -hmm. um or down syndrome or asperger's which is autism Mm -hmm. um they don't call it that kind of shit do they they do not they do not diagnose asperger's anymore uh it's autism spectrum disorder which is a much better way of doing it yeah anyway and so like there's a lot of bits with earth white going forward where i'm just like I hate this. <laughs> yeah. Cause... As an autistic person, I not I like Earth White. I do not like the the everything that goes on around him and what people expect of him mm-hmm. because he just you know wants to be one way and everybody's like, no, you need to be the other way, and this is why. And he's like, I don't understand. Yeah. He asks for lunch, and Ashnan says she supposes the others are hungry too. Pickle kisses her paw, flattering her for food. She sees through it, but leads them towards home anyway. She's just like, oh, cut it out, you young rip. Let's see. You could just oh, lo- okay, here we go. more than all of these other ones combined. Yeah. Oh, go on with you, Longshanks. She cuffed the young hare's ear lightly. I can see you'd take more feeding than a whole army just by looking at you. <laughs> It's a nice home, carved out of a natural cave and furnished with much care and love. And I'm like, gay aunties, gay aunties, gay aunties. Cottagecore lesbians. (laughs) That's what they are. Literally, yeah. Um, Literally cottagecore lesbian grannies. (laughs) A feast is set out for them. Let's see. I'm going to read it out because it actually does sound like a feast. It sounds so good. So good. A crisp salad of fennel. Hazelnuts, young dandelions, and scallions was placed on the table, followed by a giant-sized leek and mushroom pasty, its steaming golden crust adorned with watercress. A large pitcher of cherry cordial and beakers came next, with cold mint-flavored spring water standing by in another jug. Apples baked in honey with dollops of yellow king cup cream topped the whole thing off with a wide, flat, sugared plum cake standing by as an extra. 
Oh man, that sounds good. Um, <laughs> the elder, nope. the elder ladies encourage the kids to eat. Mara is careful in her eating, but the other three go to it with a will. It's while they're eating that Mara spots the Blackstone on Earthwhite's belt. Tubgut confirms that it is the Blackstone. Earthwhite unhooks it from his belt, telling with a smile of how he'd scared it off a shrew, and how most folks thought him a ghost when seen at night. It was a dreary thing, and he happily passes it off to Mara, say, seeing her gratitude. It's just like, he's the same age as his brother, but his life has been so different that even though they're twins, they are completely opposite creatures. Yeah. They've had two completely different lives. Mm -hmm. Like, Earthwhite got to have a, some semblance a, a of parent, a mother. Like, yeah. Some semblance of family. And, um. Shit, what the fuck is his name? <laughs> Earthstripe. Earthstripe? Yeah. Earthstripe didn't get that. Yeah. We don't know how he ended up at the mountain. But Not somehow yet. he did. Not yet. Uh, but he did, and you know that he had a significantly harder life. Like, it was... So, like, it's just... Uh... Yeah. She thinks him out... I feel bad. <laughs> feel sad. She thinks him out loud, saying Logalog will be very grateful. Lonebud marvels at how they'd come all this way just for some black stone. She'd been worried they'd wanted to colonize the island. Ashnin is sharp, though. She knows Mara wasn't just there for the stone. So Mara explains how it's a favor. So Logalog and his crew will take her home so she can save her father from Farago. At the sound of the name, Earthwhite becomes all fury and anger. Bellowing out the assassin's name, he stands. He's lost this in- This is another uh, uh, autism stereotype. Mm-hmm. He's lost in a fury, calmed just enough by his two tenders to drink a cherry cordial mixed with powder. He shuffles off to sleep off his rage in the sun. Once that's done, Lonebud asks Mara for more information. Earthstripe was alive? She confirms that yes, he is, and the Lord of Salamandastron. Lonebud wants I, to hear more. Oh. I, I need to just kind of just take a second for both of us to look at the fact that his two mother figures, instead of working to de-escalate and give him ways to de-escalate his own anger, just drug him. Yeah, pretty much. Although, you know... Just out and out drug him. Like, they do calm him down first, but just enough for him to take the, the drugs. Yeah. Just enough to drug him, instead of, you know, maybe teaching him like good coping mechanisms for his anger they're just like no nah, we're just gonna drug him because he's so big like it's sad no. to say but that's what they did back then if you started to act out they would give you something to calm you down it doesn't make it right I, you're like the yeah, methods that we have yeah. nowadays are better but we have more accumulated knowledge that have taught us the better ways to help people with that healthier alternative i still like it nope you're very fair to not like it um because it's bad this is how people were treated and it's bad mm -hmm. and it's not like this is shown as like it's the this is just like a one-off like this it's shown and then it's not fucking talked about yeah and i'm just like no lone bud wants to hear more what's he look like like his brother and mara's life under him she wants to hear all about her lost grandson so mara tells her and it's like that really abruptly shifts my image of how old Earthstripe and Earthwhite are. Because, like, I had been assuming they'd been, like, 40s or 50s with just how, like, the way Earthstripe acts. But now that, like, my brain is kind of resetting them to be, like, maybe late 20s, mid 30s, late uh, or, like, early 40s at the oldest, it explains a lot about Earthstripe fumbling to be a dad because like if he is this young after all and having not had any parental figures of course he's gonna be fumbling like trying to be a dad he's like just out of being a kid himself potentially or yeah. even just like settling into adulthood he's still like oh i suddenly have this responsibility i was not expecting and it explains like 
how much he enjoys the fighting, he still has that youthful, like, spunk of, I can survive anything. Yeah. Although he knows his fate, but... (laughs) um, (laughs) That same dawn... The fate of every warrior. Right. That same dawn, three shrew longboats... Logboats? Long (laughs) logboats... I mean, they're they're long long boats. <laughs> You're not wrong. I'm not wrong. Um, set out on the great southern stream. There's no real need to paddle with the current at their back and the wind aiding them as well. Arula is having a blast. Spriggit complains a little that they're going too fast to catch any bugs to eat. And Sam Kim sits at the front of the boat with Alpho looking for signs of the fox. He is enjoying the trip, saying it wouldn't be a bad thing to be a shrew. Alpha says good. The fox had to come this way. They didn't have to worry about which other way until after the rapids. Spriggit is dismayed, saying they never mentioned rapids. Alpha comforts him. They're a ways ahead, and he'll give him plenty of warning before they hit them. The stream picks up more and more speed with the captains of the boats calling out orders to avoid debris in the water. Soon enough, he gives the order to stow the oars and hang on tight. They've hit the rapids. The trip is no longer fun. Water crashing over them and only two experienced shrews guiding the boats through the white waters. And I'm like, no, thank you. No, 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 thank you. Not today. Not me. No. Listen, listen. Log, or, or, log, (laughs) Log Mountain? Blanking on this. Disney. Log Drop. Uh. Anyway. Yeah, like, log flume rides are one of my least favorite things in the world because they always have a drop at the end, and I hate that drop. It literally physically hurts me. Um, anyway. They have to have the drop, though, so that everybody gets wet. I know, but they still, I don't like them. Um, Sam Kim can only admire the competent shrews. The boats make it safely into a lagoon after one last stretch that was almost a waterfall. And this whole sequence is a delight to read because here we finally really get to see the shrew culture in its element. And like mm-hmm. the shrews are always depicted as being quarrelsome and argumentative and ready to fight. But it's like here we have them in the water where all of a sudden they are working like a team. This is what they love. This is what they live for. And we get to see them finally doing that fully and unhindered. It's so good. Yeah, they work really, really well when they're in the boats, like, because they have to. There's no room for anything else, because if they make a wrong move, they could fucking die mm-hmm. or lose their boat. And those things take a long time to build. So, you know, they quarrel when they aren't on the water. Uh-huh. Because they got to blow off steam. Exactly. Um, they got to blow off steam in the stream. I'm divorcing <laughs> you again. Speaking of, they appreciate the peace of the stream, not bothered by the cloudy skies ahead. Midday sees them at a fork in the path, and they shore up on the bit of land between the split. Alpha orders a shrew into a giant hornbeam tree to get the lay of the water, but Sam Kim beats him to it impressing the shrews with his agility in the trees. As Kitty's like, shrews to water, squirrels to climbing. It's such a cute little exchange. He's back down in a flash, excitedly telling them how the fox was on the left stream, which is lucky. If he'd gone right, it'd be down into the mountain caves. They only, they're only about two hours away if they paddle well. And it's like, Brian, here's Brian streamlining the path. Yee of the plot all back together again. And it's like, I, I'm really enjoying this book with like how he split everything up and now he's sewing them back together again. It's extremely satisfying. It is. Sorry, one second. Okay. <laughs> Mom texted me like 19 minutes ago to tell me she was done. So I'm just like, okay, thank you. Okay. They push off the left fork of the stream being a straight and true shot to the sea, but they have to keep their wits about them all the same. The gray clouds turn dark, threatening a good storm. 
A ways along, Alpha spots a sidetrack half hidden by a bush come afternoon. He sees signs the fox had spotted and used it as well, and is pleased. After all, it doesn't go to the sea. It goes to the Great Lake. It's a quiet journey through a tunnel of trees surrounded by green. Spriggett enjoys snacking on unseen bugs, and the rest share food all through and along the boats. As the storm picks up, so does the stream, just enough that they see the tail end of the stolen longboat turn a bend in front of them. You have to say the thing you said. The thing I said? What? Oh, yes. You're... Yes. Sorry. What I wouldn't give for a Ghibli aesthetic Redwall movie, like, not written. Please. Like, not written for Studio Ghibli, because, like, as much as I love Miyazaki, he definitely loves taking books and, like, co-opting them to his agenda, which is fair. But I have, like, there. I love the story of, like, the gal who wrote House Moving Castle, uh, Diane Wynne-Jones. She's like, yeah, mm. I like his movie. I like his adaptation. But it's not my story. <laughs> She's like, no, it's, it's not. I just want Redwall food to be animated as though it were in a Ghibli movie. Yeah, and like some of the scenery shots. Please. Yeah. I want it. Yeah. It's so pretty and delicious. <laughs> delicious. Um, delicious. Death brush. Jimmy. Deathbrush hears the shrews shouting and urges his rats to paddle. Paddle for their lives. Upon the lake, the three shrew boats gain upon the stolen boat. A real nor'easter has whipped the lake into a mass of waves. It doesn't deter Sam Kim. Once they're close enough, he launches himself off his boat and onto Deathbrushes, ready to fight him blade to blade. Like, and this is the end of the chapter. All he has is, like, a dinky little shrew blade. Which is, like... Yeah, like a shrew rapier. And th that thing is, like, thin and will not uh -uh. hold up in a long-term fight against the the blade of Martin the Warrior. Yeah. Um, at the next chapter starts, back on the beaches of Salamander Song. listening. If you like this podcast and want to help keep it going, please consider donating to our coffee, linked in the description below. Follow our Twitter and Tumblr at Abbey Archives and join our Discord. This podcast is part of Hearthside Enclave, and some other shows you might like are Hope's Hearth, a solar hope punk actual play podcast, and Post-Apocalyptic News Radio, a Fallout-inspired audio drama.